0: Visit successfulnonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today we are going to be having a conversation with Amanda Woomer about measurement and evaluation. As I look back on the 200-plus episodes we have done over the last four or so years, I am struck at how little attention we have paid to measurement evaluation. We just have paid very, very little attention to it. I think it was episode three, and I think we recently recorded another episode on it. So up to this point, we have short-sheeted measurement evaluation and outcome evaluation. And so I'm really trying to make up for lost time, and I'm so excited that we were able to get Amanda Woomer to come onto the podcast and discuss this with us. So let me just say that if we are not thinking about how we measure what we do, and measuring our impact, and evaluating our impact, and we're not talking about giving that information to funders yet, or giving it to constituents. But if we aren't doing that on our own, we don't really even have a real sense of whether or not we're achieving what we think we're achieving. So all we really know if we're not engaging in measurement and evaluation is, gosh, whatever we're doing is hopefully making us feel good, but we don't know if it's actually moving our mission forward. And that's why we've invited Amanda to join us today. I will share with you, she works full-time in measurement and evaluation. And on the side, she does consulting in the conservation and peace-building space around measurement and evaluation. So... The other thing that I think she's going to be phenomenal for as we move through the episode today is providing actionable tips for smaller nonprofits, because she understands that not every nonprofit has an evaluation department. Hey, Amanda, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks. I'm so excited to be here.
0: My first question, let's say I'm in a nonprofit and I think that evaluation is really important and I think we should be doing it. How do I convince others, whether that's my boss or the board or someone else, how do I convince others that it's important?
1: Sure. So I think an easy place to start there is about funding. A lot of funders and more and more funders are going to ask you for different uh, outputs of m whether that's indicators or KPIs, key performance indicators, Um, that they'll want to see if they're going to give you money and after they give you money. So being able to say we have some of those indicators or KPIs first, or that we have a system in place, even if it's a very basic one, is going to help you to get more funding and to keep your funders happy. The real reason though, I think, like you said in the introduction, we know if what we're doing is the right thing to do and that we're actually achieving our objectives. I think a lot of times in different nonprofit work I've worked in the development and humanitarian sphere and as you mentioned in conservation and peace building we kind of assume we're doing this cool thing we're doing this good thing we know what we're doing so of course we're going to have the outputs that we want to see however that's not always the case and if we don't have a system in place an M&E system even a basic one we're missing opportunities to learn. We're missing opportunities to have real impact. I think a third thing to say would be that m and is scary. It's often looked at as audits or other types of controls, whereas really what it is is a system for helping you know what you should do and if you're doing it well and what you can learn and change from that. So it's not about being told that you're wrong or that something's not set up right or you shouldn't get any more funding or any of those things. But it also doesn't necessarily require a lot of money to get started. I think because of these ideas around m about what it is or what it isn't, sometimes it can be really daunting. And you think, well, I need an MNE person or I need, you know, this really expensive um, data collection system or data analysis. And I don't know how to use these things or I don't have the money for them. But really, you can start from where you are.
0: If I can take a couple steps back, I would agree with you. I think for a lot of people in the nonprofit sector, the idea of measurement and evaluation can be really scary. And I also think even though it shouldn't feel this way, it's natural that at times it feels threatening because you think, oh my gosh, if you're a program manager, what happens if people discover that this program's not effective? You might be fearful that people will think you're not competent as a program manager or your program might be eliminated if the organization falls on hard times. So I absolutely see why people could be threatened by it. And how do we help them not be threatened when we start these conversations?
1: That's a really good question. It definitely does come off oftentimes as threatening. Even the teams that I've worked with as an internal m person, I'm on their side and I still am sometimes seen as an outsider or someone that's a little scary to work with in case they do realize maybe this thing we thought we were doing isn't working so well. I think once we own m and and we make it our own and And really bring it into what we're doing from start to finish rather than just finish, which is how it's often done. That we start to see the value of it because it's not waiting until the end to make a judgment. It's from the design of our programs, figuring out what the best design is, the logic that makes sense, to collecting data throughout that gives us the information we need to know if things are going well and make changes as necessary. It should be a system that's traveling through the whole program cycle with you to serve you and your intended beneficiaries or the people that you're trying to help with your nonprofit. So shifting our mindset a little bit about what it actually is, is a good place to start. And in starting to develop that system, being very focused on the program team and the people again, that we're trying to serve not necessarily on the donors that you know we're scared of losing or getting or keeping.
0: I love the fact that you talked about the importance of starting your programs, thinking about m e not waiting until you're a year in or two years in or three years in. And one of the things, and I think it was Anne May Chang that we had on the podcast a couple years ago, she talks about the importance of... Creating a minimally viable product. So then you can run experiments and you can run tests and you can see, okay, does this work? Does this not work? What if we change this? What if we change that? And doing it in the really early stage so that it's not, oh my gosh, I've spent three years on this and I failed. It's, oh great, I learned this doesn't work. And now I can move forward with something else.
1: Exactly. I've worked with a lot of teams from the start to map out the logic of their programs. And what I find, especially if I'm working with a diverse team who has different technical experiences or comes from a different place, when we start mapping out that logic, we find that everyone has made an assumption at some point that isn't necessarily shared. Everyone has an idea of what the objective is, and that sometimes differs between everyone in the program team. So when you start with m from the beginning to help design your project or your program, you're getting everyone on the same page. Another piece of m e that I do a lot, and I think more and more m people are doing, is something called a constraints or problem analysis. So let's say you're trying to end homelessness in your area. That's an awesome objective. And you might say, okay, let's get going. Let's start working on different activities that can help end homelessness in, in Atlanta, where I live, let's say. A lot of people don't start by analyzing the problem statement deeper. They don't start about asking, well, why is there homelessness? What are these, we call them root causes of homelessness in my city? But when we start from there, we get a better idea of what activities are going to have the impact that we seek and are appropriate to the situation. And then we follow that logic through to ending homelessness. Everyone gets on the same page. And at this point, you can identify to your point, what data I need to know if this is going well. Again, Emily's daunting. Sometimes we think, oh, I have to collect indicator data for these 50 things and talk to 100,000 people. You know, we get really overwhelmed thinking we need more than we do. When at that stage, the question to ask is, what information do I need, a minimally viable product on information standards, to know if what I'm doing is what I set out to do, and if it's having the effect that I wanted it to have. And oftentimes that's something really simple. You know, having a conversation with someone, sending out a survey with a couple of questions. There's a lot of different options if we stop. And instead of thinking, what's the gold standard in M&E? We ask, what do I actually just need to know?
0: It almost sounds like the limping cow phenomena. And I don't know if you've heard about this or not. No. So- I read about this, gosh, maybe five or six years ago, and dairy farmers were having a real issue because cows were getting high numbers of infections, which, of course, regardless of what the purpose of the cow was, whether it's food or milk or something else, you know, cows with infections are much less likely to be productive for the farmer. And so they kept going, oh, my gosh, what variables impact this? What variables impact this? And at some point, they said, Because they could not figure out what variables were really impacting it because they would tweak different things and the infection rates were just not going down. And so at some point they said, all right, what are the, I hate to say comorbidities, but almost what are the comorbidities? What are the things that we notice are happening at the same time? And one of the things they found was that many of the cows that had infections also were starting to limp. And so they said, all right, what variables can we tweak that will keep the cows from limping? And guess what? Once they kept cows from limping, they actually dramatically reduced infections. And so it's sort of known as the limping cow phenomenon, because if they just measured what percentage of cows are limping, they're having the impact they want.
1: That's a great example, and one i had never heard before. It also makes me think, too, about a couple of things in m One of them is a lot of times we're working with people, and if Unlike cows, we can talk to people and ask them, what else is happening in your life? What else is going on? I think sometimes we all get a little anxious to help, and we forget to talk to people about what they need. One of the organizations I work with works on housing, and sometimes we're very eager to say, well, you need a new roof, or you need a new foundation, when instead we should be asking people what they need or what the most important thing is to them. That makes our projects more sustainable in the long-term if we're meeting their needs, but it also gives us a lot more information, like seeing that limp in your example. So I think that's one place where the m mindset helps us is starting by asking people questions to get us to the, that design that we're so eager to jump into and get into, but often don't stop and ask the right questions about.
0: So let's say that you've been essentially collecting your data and Now you're ready to sit down and crunch your data and you've got some good findings, whether that's, oh, here are things we need to change, or wow, we are just the best program that's out there, period. What should organizations be doing with that data?
1: That's a good question, too. It depends on the data that you have. But if we're following along the principles of being transparent, which I know can be challenging sometimes, especially if our data is telling us some not great things, One thing we should be doing with that data is possibly sharing it back to the people we collected it from and telling them, hey, you're part of this group. This is what we found about the impacts of our work on your group. Sharing it with donors is obviously something we're all pretty used to doing, but sharing it in ways that make sense and that highlight key pieces of what we're doing and key findings. There are a lot of people out there who talk about the fact that Very long 20, 40, 60 page reports with findings don't get read. And if you're thinking about the audience that you want to share with, whether that's the people you're serving or maybe donors that you want to get in the future, donors that are funding you now, other potential partners that you want to partner with to solve the problem you're trying to solve. Thinking really concretely about how to share that in a way that makes sense for them almost never a very long report. Maybe it's a PowerPoint. Maybe it's an infographic. And a lot of these things you can do really easily with Excel. Just some basic analysis can be done there and creating some graphs and charts that you can share with people in a visual way to give them an idea of the information you've collected.
0: I have to give a shout out to Excel as well. It is actually a really powerful tool. And I'm a little bit of a pivot table nerd. So when I'm working with Essentially, you know, a spreadsheet with a lot of data in it. To me, there's nothing like doing some pivot tables. Oh my gosh, it will save me four hours of work,
1: yeah. I'm a fan as well. You know, we all don't have the monetary and time resources to learn more complex data analysis. Maybe to take a step back, too, we also don't always have to be collecting quantitative data or numbers for everything. I think, again, people think, oh, the gold standard for M&E, I need to be able to run regressions and all of these things. And we often don't have time for that. But collecting qualitative data, you know, just talking to the people who are trying to serve and getting a feeling of how things are going. We talked earlier about the fact that if you wait till the end, you might have missed opportunities over a year, two, three years. But if you're having regular check-ins, go back to my example of homelessness, talking to people and just saying, how are things going? Is this service I'm providing meeting your needs? What could I do better? What should I do more of? These are ways to get qualitative data that you don't need to analyze in a very time-consuming, intense process, but that's going to give you a lot of rapid feedback to say, hey, maybe we need to tweak this program. Now, and not, you know, when we get to the midpoint.
0: Absolutely. I know we had started to touch on how you disseminate your data. What are some of the best practices you've seen for sharing data with funders?
1: I think the biggest thing is to share things in a way that are accessible to funders. Again, long reports, people don't read them. Maybe you do have the long report because it's required, but I often think it's better to come up with very visual and short ways to share findings. There are a ton of examples if you just Google one-pagers reports or, you know, you want to look at YouTube videos on putting together, sometimes we call them data placemats that have a visual representation of some of the data that you have in this form where you can take it and put it in front of you and, and really look at it. That's a better way to engage funders than to have a report if you present some of your data more visually, which could include key pullouts from those conversations with the people you're trying to serve. You could have quotes on that placemat as well and give that to a funder as part of a discussion about, hey, this is the data we've collected. Here's what we found. We think that this means We should tweak something a little bit, or we need to change the group that we're focusing on, or whatever the case may be. That promotes a conversation versus a, you know, check the box. I have submitted the report that I promised to you. I think make it readable, make it short, and make it as visual as possible to start a conversation.
0: I'll share with you, one of the things you do, and I'm all about that, is whenever I send a report to a funder. When I send that report, because nowadays we typically send them all by email, I will say to them, I'd like to schedule some time next week so I can walk you through this report. Because A, I know they may not actually look at the report, even if it's just three pages long, they might glance at it and say, okay, we got our report. But B, I also want to give them the stories behind those numbers.
1: Yeah, that is so important. I think finding any way to dialogue and also to learn, depending on who your funder is, you may get insights from them about how you might change your program based on the data that you collect. But they also have a better opportunity to learn from you if you're having a conversation. Yeah. Versus great. You sent me this really pretty one pager and I'm interpreting it how I'm interpreting it, but they're missing a lot of that rich detail and background. I think it's also a conversation with a funder at this stage is a really good place to talk about your M&E and how you're using it to learn. You're consistently gathering data to get feedback and to learn and to tweak things. I think most funders will be happy that their money is going towards something that they know will be more effective than if you just waited till the end and did a fancy evaluation.
0: So, it's funny that you say that. I was the interim executive director somewhere a few years ago. and the fundraising office sent me an annual report that we were needing to give to a funder literally like just two days from then. And I read it and I had to go back to the fundraising office and say, I'm sorry, this is just fluff. We can't send this out. And they said, what do you mean? I was like, well, we need to be really honest about both where we excelled and also where we didn't and where we had challenges and why. And then I pointed them to the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Reports, which are written by Warren Buffett. I don't know if you've ever read one of those. So they are a phenomenally good read. And I actually think everyone in the nonprofit sector should read his annual report, in part because there are some legal requirements as a corporation when you draft your annual report, when you're a publicly traded corporation. So he meets all of those legal requirements, but he also... Writes his letter to the shareholders in this very, and his letter to the shareholders is not a short read. It's, you know, 25, 30 pages, something like that, but in a very folksy way. But he also was very upfront about where he made good decisions that year and where he made bad decisions. And so, for example, he will really say, Three years ago, when we bought XYZ Business, we really thought that it was going to do this for Berkshire Hathaway. And were we ever wrong? And That's okay because we learned something from it. Here's what we learned from it. And you read this, and it's so refreshing to read because so often, whether this is coming from a fundraising office or a nonprofit chief executive or a for-profit chief executive, we all want to pretend like we're just going from success to success and just sort of ignore the fact that sometimes we don't succeed, but we learn from it. And people have mad respect when we own that.
1: That's so true. I'm thinking now of the founder of water.org. And one of his principles has always been, let's be transparent about what's working and what's not. And that is really scary. I've worked for a lot of different nonprofits that tried to sweep the negative findings under the rug or couch them in the report in a different way or maybe gloss over them as quickly as possible. But I agree. I think it's really important to own what's working and what's not. And the only way you're going to know that, really, is if you have some kind of an M&E system in place. And so while it is scary to go to a donor and say, hey, we, we started the program this way. We thought it was going to work. We found out it's not. We need to change it. I think they're going to respect that a lot more. If you can point to the data that's shown you that, and you can point to these learning processes you have in place. And if you can say to them, we now know we're going to do a better job with your money. I think that's a trend you'll see more and more in nonprofits is that requirement for transparency and and honesty.
0: And I will say my experience has been funders are so used to nonprofits not being transparent that they are super appreciative when you are, and they are far more likely to trust you when you take risks, if you they know that you're someone who's just going to tell them the truth.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think this all starts, again, with not seeing m as a funder-required piece of what you're doing to do at the midpoint at the end, but you're starting with it from the very beginning. Because not only will you have a better program when you think through the logic of it initially, but you will have an ME system built in place that's there for your own learning to then share that with funders and other people working in the same space as you.
0: Oh my gosh, absolutely. Well, Amanda, you know, I have been saving up a great, great off the map question for you. Awesome. Because I Googled you and I found out that you're a pretty prolific artist. In multiple mediums.
1: I do do some art, yes. I do some watercolor painting on the side in my spare time, which is not always in abundance. And I also do a lot of landscape photography. Nature is where I recharge my batteries. So that's been a fun outlet for me over time. It's the place where I get in the zone.
0: Listeners, I have to share with you, Amanda is being very, very modest when she says, I do some. We're going to link to her artist Instagram page if she's okay with that. Okay, she's nodding her head yes. So we're going to link to the artist Instagram page because you're going to see it's not some prolific, just really prolific and impressive and some really amazing art as well.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate
0: that. And I think I read somewhere that you kind of put your... PhD studies on hold for a little while, so you could pursue your art, and then you returned and finished your PhD. Is that accurate?
1: I did. I, I had a hard time with my PhD. Um, I was very focused on doing work with an organization rather than getting a PhD just to have a PhD um, and the just the academic pursuit. And I was having a really hard time finding a partner, and so. To take the pressure off, I think I switched focus for a bit. And I found it, you know, working on art and photography to be really grounding. And it worked out in the end. I found a great partner to do my PhD with, and everything happened as it should have.
0: And so we're just going to continue this off the map a little bit. Who was the partner?
1: I worked with Conservation International. They have a division of the organization that is looking at peace building and conflict sensitivity and environmental conservation. And maybe because I'm an ME nerd, but I saw that ME would be a great way to ensure that they were being conflict sensitive in their work and doing peacebuilding work. And we had an awesome partnership that resulted in a great guide for conservation practitioners.
0: That's awesome. That is really, really awesome. And again, I did a little bit of research on you. So I also think your master's degrees thesis was also in partnership.
1: The, my master's thesis was a little off off the map on the off the map questions. I worked with a Buddhist center in Atlanta to study how Americans were um, taking and making their own Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, so the center is, is Drepung Losling. It's the North American seat of the Dalai Lama, and it's also affiliated with Emory University. So, really, really interesting. Um, not connected to what I do now, but I think it gives me a good perspective.
0: Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. I am grateful that you would share some really important information with our listeners, not just about measurement and evaluation, but also why it's important. And why this is something they should embrace and they should be transparent about with their constituencies. So thank you so much for coming on. Listeners, I want to make sure that you know how to reach out to Amanda. She actually does not have her own URL, but you can reach out to her on LinkedIn. And we are also going to put a link to her LinkedIn page in our show notes. And she has made a very generous offer. Any organization that reaches out to her through LinkedIn can get a 30 minute consult on monitoring and evaluation, on conflict sensitivity, or on facilitation needs. So Amanda, thank you for joining us and thank you for that super generous offer.
1: Thank you, it was great to be here.
0: All right, guess if you were just super busy Googling the Atlanta seat of the Dalai Lama, Then don't worry, you just go to our show notes, SuccessfulNonprofits.com, and we will have a link to Amanda's LinkedIn page right there. Before we wind down the podcast today, I just want to read a quick listener review. Chad wrote, This is the first podcast I have ever subscribed to, and I am glad I did. Thoughtful guests, extremely prepared hosts, and topics that inspire action. Chad, I just have to say, I am truly honored and privileged that the first podcast you would subscribe to would be ours, and welcome to the podcasting world, because there's a plethora of great stuff out there for you. So welcome, my friend. Listeners, if you've not already written a review, I'm going to ask you to do that today. It is one of the best ways that you can help other people find our podcast, and if you are really feeling motivated, maybe even mention it to some of your friends that are also in the nonprofit sector. That, listeners, is our show for the week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This show is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. And while I always hate to sound snarky about this, come on, really, we all should already know this. But if you do think that's the kind of advice you need, trust me, it is best for you to find a licensed, competent professional and get the advice from them. If you're not sure who to talk to, reach out to me because I know a lot of folks and I might be able to hook you up with someone who could actually help you out.